Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Who do you turn to for support and access to opportunities? Who can help you with information about a new job or educational choices or healthcare and housing? This is your social network, your social capital, and it matters for your economic mobility in this society. On this episode, I speak with a scholar who, along with teams of researchers, has analyzed how social networks in four American cities impact social mobility and what that research says in particular about social networks by race, gender, and income. Camille Busset is a senior fellow in economic studies, governance studies, and the Metropolitan Policy Program, and also the director of the Race, Prosperity, and Inclusion Initiative here at Brookings. In our wide-ranging conversation, she talks about the research design, its findings and implications, and some policy ideas to address social capital gaps. Also on this episode, Joe Perilla, a fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program, on what he calls America's wage problem. The prevalence of low-wage work, he says, puts families under financial strain. Listen to find out what can be done to lift struggling families into self-sufficiency. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get information about and links to all our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, the current, and our events podcast. First up, here's Joe Perilla with another Metro Lens. Hi, this is Joseph Perilla, fellow here at the Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program. America has a wage problem. In the past two decades, inflation-adjusted wages have remained stagnant for most workers, and low-wage jobs have accounted for a large and increasing share of the nation's job growth. This prevalence of low-wage work puts families under tremendous financial strain. In a new report, Sifan Liu and I found that in 2019, 44% of families with children did not earn a pre-tax, pre-transfer income that was high enough to cover their families' living expenses. For Black and Latino families, that share increases to nearly 60%. Over 50% of families with children were struggling to make ends meet in places like Miami, Las Vegas, Orlando, and Los Angeles, whereas on the lower end, The share of struggling families was slightly above 30% in places like Pittsburgh and Boston and Seattle. What would be required to make a dent in these numbers? Say, lifting half of these struggling families into self-sufficiency. Well, to accomplish that, the nation needs more jobs that pay a family's sustaining wage. As of 2019, the United States had a family-sustaining job deficit of 9 million jobs, or about 7% of full-time positions. And again, local variation in this dynamic is quite significant. We provide a family-sustaining wage for every metro area in the country, and we find that nearly all have more struggling families in them than family-sustaining jobs to support those families. So here in the greater Washington region, for example, 37% of families with children do not earn high enough wages to make ends meet. And to move half of those struggling families into self-sufficiency, the region would need 166,000 more jobs that pay, on average, $27 per hour. By contrast, say, in Akron, Ohio, which is a much more affordable region, the family-sustaining wage is closer to $21. So why did we do this? Well, our report's objective 
is quite practical. We think that these family sustaining wage thresholds by metropolitan area can guide public-private partnerships that want to rebuild a more socially stable and prosperous economy in the wake of COVID-19. We also think these data can illuminate how national policies, say like a $15 federal minimum wage or a new child allowance, would come to ground in the nation's diverse network of local economies, each with their own unique labor markets and cost structures. And finally, our findings point to three buckets of interventions that we think could address economic insecurity in the wake of COVID-19 and build more resilient and opportunity-rich regional economies for the long term. First, regional education and talent development efforts are critical. Even amidst record unemployment, family-sustaining jobs remain unfilled in every metropolitan area. So regional leaders should prioritize connecting struggling workers to these family-sustaining jobs through skills and supportive services and reconnection efforts. Second, economic development policy should really focus itself on encouraging business growth in those sectors that really concentrate family-sustaining jobs, since not all industries are equal in this regard. And then third, we need to just raise the floor on more low-wage jobs. Talent development and economic development strategies alone are not going to close the nation's opportunity deficit without upgrading existing jobs that are not currently offering family-sustaining wages. So higher minimum wage is critical. Other job quality interventions could be pursued locally, such as helping small businesses upgrade their management and operations and human resources capabilities such that they can be more productive and really stay in business if the minimum wage increases. The point is that simply rebuilding the economy on a foundation of low-wage work in the wake of COVID is going to miss an historic opportunity to invest in a higher quality, more inclusive economic future. You can find more research like this on our website, brookings.edu slash metro. And now here's my interview with Camille Busset on social networks. Camille, welcome back to the Brookings Cafeteria. It's great to be here, Fred. Thanks for Uh, inviting me. Certainly. And it's nice to see you again after uh, a couple of years. And here we are on Zoom, but I think we're doing okay. And we're here to talk about research that you've been involved in with the How We Rise work at Brookings Race, Prosperity, Inclusion Initiative that you direct. And the two papers in particular, the two essays in particular that I want to draw listeners' attention to are about how social networks impact economic mobility. And to set the stage, there's two papers. There's one that's focused on Charlotte, North Carolina. Right. And there's another paper that's focused on Racine, Wisconsin, San Francisco, California, and Washington, D.C. And there's a whole group of scholars involved in the research work here. Camille, let me start by asking you, what is meant by a social network and what does it have to do with social mobility? Great question. So I know that a lot of people, when they think about social networks, they're really talking about Facebook and sort of the media networks. But what we're talking about here are your social relationships. So who you know, And in the case of this research, what we wanted to know is, who do you go to 
when you are looking for a new job or just finding out about employment opportunities, who you look to when you want to change your housing situation or your education situation, or you want to avail yourself of new training opportunities. We also, in this particular set of studies, looked at healthcare networks. So who do people turn to when they have health issues? Because it unfolded while the pandemic was still going. We also focused on the COVID networks, and then we looked at childcare networks. But for the purposes of the two essays, we initially focused on what we found around who you turn to when you're looking for a job, educational, or housing opportunities. And so why that set of cities? And the one essay, again, it's Charlotte, North Carolina. And the other essay, it's a combination of Washington, D.C., San Francisco, California, and Racine, Wisconsin. So why those four cities? So when we think about economic mobility, which is the possibility that a poor child might end up higher on the economic ladder than his or her parents, when we think about that, these four cities actually represent very different economic mobility profiles. So Charlotte, North Carolina is one of very low economic mobility, but lots of high income in that area. Racine, Wisconsin is extremely low mobility for a variety of different reasons. San Francisco is high mobility and Washington DC is sort of a mixed picture, better than Charlotte, but certainly not as good as San Francisco. So what we wanted to do was be able to see how people's opportunity networks, social networks compared in different kinds of mobility contexts. I definitely want to get into the substance of the papers. That's what we're going to spend the most of the time on here. But as a student a long time ago of policy design and interviewing people for policy research, I'm fascinated by how you and the other researchers actually conduct these studies. And especially, I know these were done last year at a time of coronavirus lockdowns. Can you kind of walk through how you and your collaborators conducted this research? Sure. So for all four cities, what we had decided to do was conduct one-on-one interviews. We would actually ask people about who they reached out to and then have them describe these folks that they reached out to and what kinds of relationships they had with them, what sorts of resources were exchanged and how strong those relationships were and how reciprocal those relationships were. So these were conceived as one-on-one physical interviews like you and I sitting in a room and talking about these things. And then just as we were about to launch, everything went into COVID lockdown. And so we took a pause in both of these research projects and decided to do these interviews virtually. And of course, when you do interviews virtually, there are a different set of considerations. So now you're looking at people, wherever they are, you're seeing things about them that you wouldn't see if you'd had a more neutral location. So we had to retrain our interviewers and make them aware of the fact that people can be sensitive about that, help the folks we were interviewing put on other backgrounds if they wanted that, and then be very responsive if they hear or see something that requires an intervention. So that's how we pivoted during COVID as we made them virtual. And in some cases, we did them by phone because the folks we were interviewing didn't actually have broadband set up or weren't comfortable using it. So that's how we conducted it. And the interviews were about 60 to 90 minutes, depending on how people answered and how in-depth they got into describing their network. And I just want to also flag the physical design of these essays is beautiful. I like to always brag about 
the great design work that comes with a lot of these essays that are on the Brookings website. I just did an interview recently with Aloysius Ordu on Foresight Africa, another beautiful mm-hmm. report. I want to draw particular attention for listeners to the Charlotte essay because it has some great infographics in it about social networks. And just the infographics alone explain a lot of the substance of the reports. So let's go there now, Camille. And you talked about this a little bit earlier, but I just want to make sure I underscore for myself and for listeners that when you talk about a social network, it's not necessarily your family and your friends, although it can be. In particular, it's a set of people that you would turn to for, as you said, jobs, housing, education, healthcare advice. How do people acquire these social networks? How do we develop these social networks? Well, you're right. So it could be your friends and family. And we found out that in a lot of cases, most people's social networks relative to jobs, housing, and education did include some family members, some friends, et cetera, and then obviously some professional contacts. But most people tend to form their networks and these connections through school. And it could be as early as kindergarten. So, you know, you might grow up in a place and you're there and you're now 40 and you've known folks since you were in kindergarten. So there are a lot of people like that. And then there are a lot of people who form their social networks in addition to whatever happened in K through 12th grade, actually form it if they happen to go to college afterwards. So community college or four-year college, or even if they happen to go to graduate school. So that whole educational setting is one of the primary ways that people form networks. And that was true in every city that we looked at, but I'm going to put an asterisk and go back and talk a little bit about San Francisco. So people also generally across all these four cities tended to form their networks at work as well. And work was a great place to form networks. And as people change jobs, they all would have friends or colleagues from former positions, right? And former jobs in their networks. And so jobs and schools seem to be the main institutional settings where people formed their networks that had nothing to do with family or very, very close relatives or friends that were in your neighborhood. So those were the main settings. And I just wanted to just kind of double back and talk a little bit about San Francisco. So San Francisco is a high mobility city. It's also a place where there are a lot of people who kind of go there for the opportunities. It's well known as a tech and financial center. So what we found is in San Francisco, people also formed networks at community activities. This was really, really true, particularly for people who were lower income in San Francisco, but it was also very true for high income people. So high income people had the usual pattern that we saw where they would meet people in school largely construed K through college or graduate school. They also would meet people at work, but they also met people. And it was a significant number of folks actually met people through community activities. And that really stood out. That was very different from what we heard in the other three cities. When you talk about income, you talk about low income and high income, there's three income bands that are the parameters for the income lens on social networks, low, middle, and high. Is that right? That was true for Charlotte. In San Francisco, it turned out that there really was kind of a cutoff at $50,000. We looked at the data, and if you were under $50,000 a year, you had a different kind of set of social networks than if you were above $50,000. So it was a little bit more binary in San Francisco, but for the other cities, and particularly for Charlotte, it was like low, middle, and high. Some of the other ways that you look at social mobility, social networks are through 
gender and also then through race and ethnicity. And one of the most striking findings, I think, is when you look at it through the race and ethnicity lens, white people have the largest networks, I think, in all of these cities, but they're exclusively white. White people have white networks, whereas other people, African-Americans, Latinos, Asian-Americans have smaller networks, but they tend to be more diverse. Can you talk about why that is? And did that finding in particular surprise you? Yeah, that is the finding. And let me just even nuance it a little bit more. It was really, really true for white men, universally, I would say. And that did surprise us. So let me say, when we came into this, our expectations were that we are going to see some differences, right? We know just anecdotally that some people have better access to opportunities than others. And we would expect that to show up somewhere in your social relationships. But beyond that, we didn't really have a set of hypotheses or expectations. So we were actually quite surprised to find out how homogenous white networks were, particularly in places like Washington, D.C. or Charlotte, North Carolina, where there is a very significant African-American population and others, lots of others. You know, you think about Washington, D.C., we're very cosmopolitan. We have people from all over the world here who are professionals, et cetera, in every kind of portion of the employment landscape. And yet whites really only socialize with whites with respect to these kinds of opportunities. So that was actually really surprising. And I think we understand why African-Americans or Asian-Americans or Latino-Americans, why they might have others in their networks. Well, they need to have access to opportunity. And if white folks in their specific vicinity tend to be the gatekeepers or have that information, it would make sense for those folks to have whites in their networks and to have others in their networks as well. But the homogeneity of white networks was, in fact, really, really surprising. What is the cause for that? I mean, why do white people have such homogenous networks, especially white men? Well, I think part of it has to do with they don't really need anybody else in their networks. Their networks actually turns out work really well for them. So when we looked across all of these cities, and I would say in San Francisco, white men had racially homogenous networks, but they were slightly less racially homogenous in San Francisco than they were in other places. So San Francisco had some interesting little twists here and there, but generally speaking, white men and white women, whites in general, had broader networks, meaning they had different kinds of people in their networks. So they had colleagues, they had bosses, they had relatives, brother-in-laws, father-in-laws, mothers, et cetera. They had friends from school, other parents where their kids go to school, et cetera. So like really broad networks. And those were also bigger. The networks were also bigger. And the kinds of information that was exchanged across those networks, so hints on jobs or an actual contact or providing a reference, those are more numerous. A broader set of things were happening in those networks. And if that's working for you, which is what we found, like those are networks that work, then you like really don't need to go out of that. And we also found that particularly in Charlotte, but it was true in the other cities, that whites tended to also reside in places where there were mostly white people. So in your neighborhood, your neighbor, your person down the street, the dad who's a soccer coach for your little neighborhood group or whatever, they were all white. So 
the housing situation also tended to mirror those networks and people tended to be in these pretty, I would say, segregated, sounds harsh, but I would say racially homogenous residential setups. And as a result, their kids often went to schools, whether it was public or private, that were also racially homogenous. So we, that is something that we saw as well. I want to draw listeners' attention again back to the data visualization, especially on that question of diversity and who's in your network, the different kinds of people that are in different kinds of networks. It's just so striking that, as you were just saying, Camille, white men have their mothers, male relatives, male in-laws, daughters, sisters, spouses, ex-spouses, brothers, partners, sons, father-in-laws in their network, whereas, for example, black men include their mother, a female in-law, and a partner, and black women cite a mother as predominant in their network, and that's about it. I think for white people and white men especially, the homogenization of the networks really speaks to the underlying issue that you and so many scholars at Brookings are talking about, social mobility and equity issues. Absolutely. So one of the reasons we did this, wanted to explore this area, is that we know as public policy experts, and you've had some scores of people in your podcasts and videos who will talk about specific kinds of initiatives that have been launched or approaches that have been tried, internships, training programs, a whole host of things that they've been housing voucher systems, right? A whole host of things that have been tried to try to increase pathways to opportunities. And yet, I would say decades of efforts in those areas, we've seen really kind of paltry gains relative to the level of effort. And one of the things we wanted to explore here was why is that happening, right? There's got to be some other kind of set of barriers and challenges. And many, many other folks who've looked at this have said, obviously, racism is a key operating cultural kind of context. But what we wanted to do was rather than just say, okay, maybe racism is operating and preventing people from accessing opportunities, like how is that actually operationalized? And we didn't come into this thinking, oh, right, social networks are all about race. We actually didn't know. But what we did see is that you do see the way in which racial homogeneity really does alter the kinds of pathways that people can use as social grease, basically, that's used to access opportunities. And so that's what we want to do. We want to kind of get behind the policies and see, okay, what really operates and how do people really get these opportunities? How does that information flow? And the reason we wanted to do that was not only to explain the puzzle of all the work that's been done, but very little gains, but also to say, maybe in public policy, we need to be a much more intentional about the social network effects of policy or the social network requirements around public policy, particularly for accessing opportunity. These reports have a lot of great recommendations that I want to ask you about in just a minute. I want to stay on this characteristics of social networks for just a moment longer. Obviously, racial characteristics are overwhelmingly determinative of how people's social networks are formed and their extent. You talked a little bit about income characteristics in the formation of social networks. What about gender? Is there a way to look at gender characteristics in the way that men or women form their social networks? Or is that also, again, 
going to be based on race? It's a great question. And actually, we found that gender actually played a very important role in the following way. So irrespective of race, men seemed to have a more consistent set of relationships and that people didn't go in and out of their networks as much. And those relationships were pretty strong. For women, women tended to associate a lot with other women. So there tended to be a lot more, I would say, homogeneity relative to gender. And that was irrespective of race. But then once you get beyond these kind of broader considerations, race was actually a really huge factor. Race and gender. So what social scientists talk about is intersectionality, which basically means there are two factors operating, right, or more. So in this case, we're talking about race and gender. And what we found was that race and gender was a great predictor of how valuable and how strong your social networks were. So for white men, these networks tended to work really well. For white women, they worked well, but not as well as they did for white men. For black women, the networks were smaller. The composition was really different. A little bit more friends and family and maybe a few colleagues here and there. And then for Black men, there was a huge drop-off. And again, I think one of the most startling findings is that Black men across all these cities tended to have very small networks, very small networks. And usually there were a couple of family members, there might be a female colleague and then one male friend. And in Charlotte, we found that for actually accessing jobs, education, and housing, Black men had one reliable contact in that network, which is a big difference from everybody else. So in this case, we actually find that race and gender were very, very predictive. And if you're Black and male, it's very likely across all of these cities, very likely that your social networks relative to opportunities is pretty small. And we believe that there are distinct policy-linked reasons for that. I definitely want to ask you about those policy choices that you talked about in the papers, but one more question then on the on the ground effects of say a black man's limited social network versus a white man's broader social network. What are the kinds of on the ground results that stem from those outcomes that you observe in these four cities or anywhere in the country really? In the end, it is about those on-the-ground effects. And the on-the-ground effect is basically you don't hear about opportunities. You don't hear about jobs. You don't hear about training opportunities. You don't hear about, hey, this new housing complex is opening up and they've got 30% of their housing is for people who are below a certain income level. You just don't hear about it. You don't hear about it through anything. So you're just not in a position to capitalize on opportunities. And so what that means is that Your opportunity to increase your income is more limited. Your opportunity to get a job that maybe has a better career path is limited. Your opportunity to maybe get some training that will lead to a better career path is also limited. And what that means is not only just for you yourself, right, but also for your family, when you have less income and you have fewer opportunities, you don't hear about other opportunities, you're kind of stuck. And your family is also stuck. And that means that you're not really in a position to move to a different area to have better opportunities for your kids. 
you're not in a position to have more disposable income, so you can pay for tutors for them or extracurricular activities or anything. So there are some real life consequences to having really small networks in these particular areas. You just a minute ago alluded to the policy choices that are driving these gaps in social networks and social capital even. So what are those kind of policy choices that you see? So one of the things that we looked at, particularly when we looked at the Charlotte results, and we're really trying to understand, wow, why are networks so racially homogenous? Why are they so small for Black men? We really focused on how people form those social networks. And you asked earlier, how do they form, right? So they form these networks at school, and they form these networks at work. So what we did is we then went back, in the case of Charlotte, and we did it for the other cities as well, but Charlotte was the first city we really examined this. And we saw that in school, schools are supposed to serve students. But in fact, in Charlotte and in North Carolina more generally, Black boys were suspended at an alarmingly high rate relative to anybody else. And those suspensions tended to really accelerate between 6th and 11th grade. So a couple of important things about that. One is, first of all, if you're suspended at a high level, you're not going to be in school, which is where you're going to meet people and form these social networks. Secondly, that adolescent period, sort of 6th to 11th grade, right? So you're talking about 12 to 17, something like that, is when young people actually start creating their identities. And it's a very important moment in their self-development about who they are, who they associate with. It helps them define themselves. And when they're pulled out of an institution where what people are doing is basically building those social relationships and social networks, they can never regain that time. And so, in fact, their social networks end up being severely limited and their ability to actually use the trial and error method of becoming an adult, that moment is passed, essentially. And so that sets them up to not be very successful in being able to create social networks. So there are actual policy decisions around school climate that create those kind of asymmetries in the ability to create these social networks. That's number one. Number two, we found, as I mentioned earlier, that a lot of folks live in pretty residentially, racially homogenous networks. So, you know, you look at any scatter plot and you can see like a lot of whites live in Washington, D.C., right? They tend to live in the west and northwest sections of the city. Blacks live in the eastern sections of the city. And the twain never meet. There's never any connection between the two. And those segregation patterns are actually the result of intentional public policy, particularly around redlining and zoning and investment of city and other kinds of resources in economic development over a period of many, many, many decades. And that's what shows up. So as a result of those policies and those actual choices that have been made, you get residentially segregated neighborhoods, residentially segregated, then therefore racially segregated neighborhoods, racially segregated schools. And then you also have in the schools where you have significant proportions of non-white students, you also have public policies around school climate that make it much more challenging for those students and particularly Black boys to be able to form the kinds of networks that would help them later on. 
It's such an enormous issue. Right? It's hard to get your mind around it if you're not already kind of a public policy scholar, just a listener here trying to sort through all of these factors in this history. So what can be done? I mean, what kind of new policy choices are available that can be made to address the social capital gaps that already exist, but also to try to prevent them moving forward? One of the things I think about when I think about social capital and I think about social relationships and the findings of this particular set of projects is that where we want to be is we want to be in a place where there is a free flow of information, free flow of options and opportunities. So that's kind of where we want to be. And so the public policy that would underpin that is public policy, which intentionally is trying to create that environment. So when you think about housing policy, right, there's lots of ink is spilled and lots of community meetings, et cetera, across the nation around affordable housing, about mixed residential housing, et cetera. But housing turns out to be actually very important to how people socialize. And so thinking about housing, not just as an opportunity for people to be in an area that's more desirable, but also thinking about it as an opportunity to create different kinds of social networks, I think is an important way of thinking about housing policy. So I think housing policy is ripe for some redesign and particularly housing policy that is not only focused on having different types of people live together, but also that allows people to go in and out of other neighborhoods, in and out of other high opportunity zones. So thinking about transportation as part of housing policy, making that egress basically pretty easy, I think is also important. And then as we mentioned in our report, there are lots of other opportunities. So we think looking at school climate is obviously low hanging fruit to the extent that school districts can collect data on what do those suspensions look like? What are the supports available for students who are suspended? What exactly are their particular living situations, et cetera? And then create programs that basically think of suspensions as a last resort and try to support those kids in other ways, I think is also really important. But we also think that just in general, overall, when you think about opportunities and you think about a particular region or city, we have to think about how do we allow everybody to have access to the same kinds of information. And so some of that is going to be through school, some of it's going to be through housing, some of it is going to be because you actually create more resources or you make more investments in particular areas to create conduits of information. So a great example of that is in a lot of low-income neighborhoods, kids don't have access to extracurricular activities unless they are provided by a nonprofit or provided by some government entity. And that is not true in high income areas, right? So if I were in, let's say, Charlotte, North Carolina, I would say, well, in this particular zip code, these kids don't have very many extracurricular activities at all. So we need to bump up the investment, either through private monies or public monies, and allow them to have access to lacrosse and debate and little league and you know everything else. And then also when we look at who these kids associate with in a high income area, the soccer coach is also going to be a venture capitalist, right? But in the low income area, 
that's not necessarily going to be the case. So what these kids see as opportunities where they could go in their lives is significantly constrained. So making sure that there are opportunities for everybody to see what that universe of options looks like is very, very important to public policy. Well, then thinking about opportunities for everybody, Camille, I want to, as you wrap up here, call listeners' attention to the reports, not only because they're full of amazing data, narrative, data visualizations. I encourage everyone to go to our website, Brookings ADU, find those reports and download them. But each report also, its title begins with the phrase, How We Rise. And How We Rise is also the title of a blog on the Brookings website that's associated with the Race, Prosperity, Inclusion Initiative. So talking about opportunity for everybody, can you, Camille, talk about the significance of the phrase, how we rise? So how we rise really is about how all of us as a community support each other to get to the point where we can all realize our own ambitions, we can all succeed, and in so doing, lift everyone else up. That's really what that is about. Okay, well, I want to thank you, Camille, for sharing with us today your time and your expertise on these very important public policy issues. Well, thanks very much, Fred. You know, it's always a pleasure to be with you. And I just want to thank our listeners. And I'm always available if people have questions or want additional information on the research. Terrific. And you can find the research on social networks in Charlotte and social networks in Racine, Wisconsin, San Francisco, California, and Washington, D.C., and how they impact economic mobility on our website, brookings.edu. Camille, thank you. Thank you, Fred. Take care. team of amazing colleagues helps make the Brookings Cafeteria possible. My thanks to audio engineer Gaston Reberedo, to Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, who does the book interviews, to my communications colleagues Marie Wilkin, Adriana Pita, and Chris McKenna for their collaboration, and finally to Camila Ramirez and Andrea Risotto for their guidance and support. Our podcast intern this semester is David Greenberg. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, The Current, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file, and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. <laughs>